0: Welcome to Call Jeshrin, a podcast from Congregation Bene Jeshrin, a vibrant and flourishing Reformed Jewish community in Short Hills, New Jersey. Welcome. I am Rabbi Matthew Gewertz. Call Jeshrin is where you can come to engage with teachings of relevant wisdom and music. You will hear from our clergy, staff, and guest speakers who will help bring meaning into a world that so badly needs it. If you would like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at tbj.org.
1: Hi. Hi. <laughs> I'm so excited and honored to be here and to have the chance to talk with you about this extraordinary book, To Build a Brave Space, The Making of a Spiritual First Responder. Your book is part memoir and part social philosophical commentary. You share with us the personal story of a young boy who once said he wanted to be a rabbi on a motorcycle. We meet him on the first day of second grade in 1972, a day the world he knew had suddenly begun to wobble on its axis. Could you tell us a little bit about that boy and how the world changed for him on that day?
0: So um, first of all, thank you, Jen Beagleson. She is incredibly generous for doing this. And um, I'm not going to list her bona fides because she get embarrassed. And she, well, I'll, I'll give one. She says that she peaked young at Harvard Law School. And um, so just leave it at that. She's an incredibly bright and sensitive, articulate human being who um, is the daughter of one of the more prominent rabbis in the country um, who gives, uh, credit to all of his success to Jen's editing of his sermon. So it gives you a little bit of understanding of, um, of who Jen Beagleston is. So thank you, Jen. Thank you, folks, for all being here. It means everything. As much as I'm around um, trying to make sure that the book uh, and its message gets out there, there's no, no place that's more important for me to talk about it than being with all of you, my family here at TBJ. So thank you uh, very, very much. Um, that young boy uh, was a boy who had not yet... Um, Uh, confronted what was going to happen three years later, which was the biggest personal crisis in my life was my parents' divorce. So I was still a pretty well-adjusted, you know, Jewish kid living in on Limbrook, Long Island. And uh, I had three things that counted for me, food and sports. And I had this affinity for being Jewish. I didn't know exactly what it was, but I uh, did indeed have an affinity for it. And uh, I belong to a synagogue called Temple Emmanuel, which is in Lindbergh, still there, much, much smaller, like many synagogues on Long Island. And uh, a rabbi named Harold Saperstein, I'm not sure if anyone's heard the name, really one of the giants of the movement in that generation, two generations ago, probably in Rabbi Pilchik's generation. Uh, Five foot six, but to me, he looked like he was six foot ten. And uh, this horrible thing happened in Munich. I didn't completely understand it, but he got up and said, uh, I'm going to fast 11 days in a row for every Israeli killed. And I remember just, you know, pulling on my father's arm and saying, how is that possible? Like, and, and why would he do that? And, and food, 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 after all. And in my mind, suddenly it came together that uh, my three favorite things, he was giving up one for the other in the name of the final one, which of course is faith and religion. And my uh, oh, my door of faith opened up for me uh, through that experience and without knowing it, realized that this guy on this thing called the Bima had a lot of persuasion uh, by way of his actions and his words. So it was an extraordinary time, but um, life changed quickly. And by the way, it's 1972. We're only talking about 30 years post-Holocaust, even less, actually. So we grew up in the shadow of all that, and here it was in Munich. I didn't put that together at that point, but imagine what it was like for Israelis to be killed in the place where 6 million were killed already.
1: Matt, you get so raw and vulnerable and share so many fascinating stories in the book about your childhood, your family, and your personal journey. I could truly easily spend all night talking to you about each of those stories. Don't worry, I know we're we're on a clock here, but um, I do wanna ask you about one very personal struggle you shared with us about a time early in your rabbinate when you were faced with a decision about whether or not to officiate at gay marriages I found that so powerful when I read it. Could you talk to us about that experience?
0: Yeah, I mean, as uh, I think at this point, all of you know that my my late mother um, came out uh, after my parents got divorced and my older sister is gay. So it was something that I've always stood up for, for very personal reasons. And yet, um, it wasn't that long ago, folks, where um, we were not in a tradition um, or in a uh, practice of officiating at gay marriages. Very few were officiating. And if there were gay rabbis in the reform movement, they were closeted. And Rode of Sholem, uh, I was still the intern, uh, a very, very important friend to me who who passed away from a plane accident a few years ago. Aaron Pankin was the assistant rabbi, was going off into academia. And we went through a process of, uh, of interviews. I was not involved because I was just a student, but it got to me quickly that the candidate that was most compelling uh, was someone in her interview who said, before I would be considered for this job, I want you to know that I'm gay. And there was only one openly gay rabbi in the country. And so you could imagine there was tension at the table for lots of different reasons. And the senior rabbi got up and said, uh, if we don't hire her because she's not qualified, I'm okay with that. But if we don't hire her and she's qualified, but you're not hiring her because she's gay, I can no longer be your rabbi. And he was only there at that point for five years, seven years, not a long time. So to watch him put his rabbit on the line was extraordinary. Uh about a she was hired, she was beloved immediately. And a year later, we had started a gay and lesbian concerns committee. And she immediately said, I'm about to get married, and how can we be part of a place where I'm going to be married, but we don't officiate, and I want us to decide. And it was like a firing squad. It was like 40 members of the congregation and the three rabbis standing in front of them, and they said, will you officiate it at, at gay marriages? And I am now maybe four months into my rabbinate, and um, I knew somehow that to make a decision that early on was going to be fraught with all kinds of political difficulties. But I also knew I believed in gay marriage. So I said I needed six months to be able to um, bring along people who didn't understand. And to be able to say to people, let me explain to you, let me teach you out of Jewish texts why this is uh, imperative that we do so. And after six months, I'm gonna officiate. And uh, my senior rabbi was relieved. Uh, my uh, pre- about to be president angrily said to me, you are a wise young man, but she was angry at me. And uh, the other rabbi didn't want to talk to me for a couple of days. And But what was most uh, uh, difficult for me is I got into the elevator of the synagogue, and I just broke down crying because now I had to face my mother and my sister. And how am I going to tell them this? So I went to the bar <laughs> and uh, ordered a scotch. Surprise, surprise. And uh, I picked up my phone, and I called my mother and my sister, and we conferenced in, and I said, I did something that's going to break your hearts. And I told them everything that happened, and both of them immediately said, we're so proud of you, and um, we know what you believe, but this is the beginning of your career, and you're going to have to bring people along in a way that's smart, that's wise, and that's measured so that you can do this forever, not just in the next six months. Um, but I don't know what would happen if they had reacted differently, but it was heartbreaking, and it took me, in some ways, years to get over. But then, by the way, I was the first uh, person in wrote of history to officiate at a gay marriage. It just happened to be that way, that I was the first. And I was the first on this. I got here, and a year into my time here, I did the same thing. By the time I got here, it was no longer a big deal though, at least for most people.
1: Sounds like uh, your mother and sister gave you some really smart, good advice that uh, we're gonna be talking about later.
0: Yeah, they, it, it was.
1: You're transparent in your book about your liberal democratic upbringing. You write that when you first came to TBJ as the new head rabbi, you were surprised to learn there were many congregants who questioned whether you could faithfully pastor to them because they didn't share your political ideology. Could you tell us about that time?
0: Yeah, I I didn't didn't, didn't even understand it yet because I had grown up in a really liberal household and uh, then I served on the Upper West Side where I remember Morning Joe used to send Willie Geist out and say, so are you voting for George W. Bush? People would say, oh, get away from me. You know, it was like, you know, the, you know, the idea of ever voting Republican on the Upper West Side was like, you know, the Rebbe eating lobster. You know, it was just like, it just was just totally, a, so that's, where I, that's what I grew up with. And Jerry Nadler would win by, by the least 60% of the vote. And uh, when, when John Kerry was running for president, Lauren put a John Kerry, and what was his running mate? Uh, he got into trouble. Uh, Edwards, thank you, we're all getting old, Edwards. And she put the uh, uh, bumper sticker on Jake's uh, carriage. Jake was like you know, three months old or something like that. And so, uh, the person we shared our nanny with got so angry at us. I said, what's, what's your problem? And so I didn't even get it. So I get here and I start to meet a lot of people who are have different political ideology than mine, But they would be sort of like comments, like, you know, you're a real bleeding heart, aren't you? I'm like, what what does that mean? And, you know, but I just get comments all the time and finally decided to have conversations with people. Uh, Bike rides and coffees. And I ended up realizing that I had been living in a bubble and that my political ideology might or might not change. But I better start listening because I also realized that some people actually wondered if I would be available for them as their rabbi because I had different political positions than they did, which of course never ever in my mind would I do. Let me tell you something, and this is a really sad commentary on today. I had a, 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 I'm not gonna say, anyway, a a student from the seminary who called me for for some advice and she said to me, like, am I supposed to actually think that I would ever officiate at a wedding for a family that supported Donald Trump? And I said, are you out of your mind? And I said, she said, what do you mean? I said, we, we don't base how we take care of people on their political ideology. But what scared me was this is sort of coming through the the, the rabbinic reform seminary reform and, of uh, uh, sorry, rabbinic and cantorial students. And it's like, welcome to the world. Like, this is only Short Hills, New Jersey. Like, just go to Idaho or go to Iowa. You want to go? I mean, you know, or you're from Michigan. I mean, it's, it's a whole different world. So... Um, Yes, I, con- I met it and I decided that it was time to have dialogue with people. This is way pre-Trump, obviously, so that changed the game in other ways that we could all explore if you want to.
1: We will. Uh, you write in your book that according to the Talmud, the philosophical reason behind the destruction of the Second Temple and the fall of the Jewish state was senseless hatred among the Jewish people themselves, a state of mind that comes about when people stop talking to one another like human beings. Can you talk to us about what you saw in the lead up and aftermath of the 2016 election that compelled you to feel you had to act to help bridge critical fractures within our community?
0: It it is my biggest fear. It really is, I mean, that comes back to me. So there's something called Sinat Chinam, which means uh, senseless hatred. It means that We argue not because we have something important to argue about or because we're trying to evolve or trying to grow as human beings, but because we want to fight with each other, because we want to tear each other apart, because we want to say that every single issue that's on the table are life and death issues when we know that there are are only some life and death issues. And I started feeling like in 14, 15, 16, and since then that we are in danger of engaging in sinat chinam, in senseless hatred, And if all of you noticed or not, I'm sure you did, you know, every single year at the holidays, I started to speak about this. First, I started with civility. Then I started, then I went to manners. And then I went to accountability. And finally, I went to faith this year because honestly, I felt like I was failing, like my message was not getting across. Because uh, more and more, uh, I won't out anyone, but I encounter families who break up marriages that are destroyed, siblings that stop talking to each other, Thanksgiving uh, dinners that are horrific. Uh, This year, uh, Frank Luntz, the pollster said one out of every four Americans was scared to go home for Thanksgiving because they thought irreparable damage would happen during the holiday because of political speech. So I thought it's time for the synagogue, if it can't be the home, to be this brave space that would allow people to have dialogue where the judgment would come only after a thorough vetting of a deep and important and thorough conversation.
1: Thank you, that's a good segue. I was gonna say, you write in your book that the task of carving out a brave space in the radical center feels like the most consequential work of your career. Let's talk about that. Can you tell us what you mean by radical centrism, how you think it presents a different path forward for us?
0: Okay, so first I'm gonna embarrass, where's Leah Sternberg? There she is, you ready for me? So um, there's always certain moments when you try to figure out why you hire someone for your team, um, especially in the role of Rabbi Encantor. and cantor. Uh, and at one point, uh, Leah said, my generation has to do a better job at distinguishing between a safe space and a brave space. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, whenever my generation gets uncomfortable, they yell, unsafe! and the whole conversation's over, right? It's over. That, that, that means that you, once you do that, you're thinking to yourself, you are now a predator, or you've become this horrible person That's you're Harvey Weinstein, right? That's where it goes. And instead, we should be in a position where um, we are able to be uncomfortable and still be able to talk up when we're uncomfortable and not call unsafe. So um, the question is how? and I was getting, I appreciate what Lauren said about um, the fact that I hope every day, but I do despair also, and I was feeling such um, desperation of despair about what was going on in our country, and I was in an airport changing planes, and a friend of my sister-in-law sent me an article and said, the exhausted majority should try the radical center, and I thought, huh, I'm exhausted, and I would like to be radical about something that's not radical left and not radical right, what would radical centrism look like? And what it looks like is not, you know, by the way, you know what moderate is a euphemism for, right? Anyone wanna try? What's moderate a euphemism for? Wimp. That's what people think it means, right? If you're, if you're a radical centrist, some of my colleagues on the left and on the right would say, no, you're being a wimp, you're being wishy-washy. I do not wanna be wishy-washy. I want us to have as much commitment to dialogue as we do to the values that we profess. And I want us to be able to sit with someone and really not just hear them so that I'm already thinking about my response, but hear them in a way that's going to help me um, open up and perhaps even change and evolve by virtue of their position, and they're willing to do the same thing And then at the end, we might have to give up a little bit of something, but not our value system, just something so that the two sides could come together and get something done. So I saw that Josh Gottheimer, who's a a, uh, congressman up north in our state, I uh, started something called the Problem Solvers Caucus, 75 congresspeople who will not vote on a position unless the two of them come together, two sides come together and decide what it is that they're going to compromise on. So I started seeing in all these different parts of society, but not clergy, not synagogues, not churches, not mosques. And I decided that we need to become that here, that instead of constantly like you know lighting our hair on fire and screaming up and down and telling everyone that we're hysterical because the world is ending, that perhaps you sit down and have a conversation instead.
1: Well, you titled the book To Build a Brave Space. I'd love to hear what a brave space looks like to you and how you see us creating it here at TBJ.
0: Well, um, it means uh, that we um, gather on evenings like this, but more importantly, uh, this is a really good advertisement for something we're doing here called resetting the table. Has anyone in the room done resetting the table here yet? Yeah, so good, so there's actually a bunch of hands. So um, Resetting the Table is an organization that comes to synagogues or other communal centers and uh, has us tell them um, who uh, in the group are Democrats, Republicans, and Independents. They get together in these triads and they talk about issues that are based on values, not on political position. And they talk it out all the way to the end and it turns out that the biggest critique that we get and this happens almost every group. They call Rabbi Sternberg and they say, why did you do this to me? And she's like, why did I do what? And she said, why did you put me in a group with everyone who votes the same way that I did? And she's like, but I didn't. There was a Republican, there was a Democrat, and there was an Independent. And what happens, it turns out that when we talk about values, we usually agree. Ninety percent of the time, it turned out that we agree. And then we could tell each other how we vote and perhaps figure out how our voting could get us to the same value. So if you start with values and you really listen and you repeat back what you've heard and they do the same, uh, again, it turns out that we can actually find common ground. And there's so much more to say, but that's the beginning. So it's not just being nice to each other and smiling at each other and being polite to one another. It's actually having the guts to have conversation and the guts to evolve and then the guts to change.
1: Uh, I was just told to remind everyone you have have cards on your table and... uh, Rabbi Karen's gonna be collecting uh, cards with questions and we're gonna open things up. So please uh, feel free to get those and then grab her attention. So I I was one of the early uh, attenders of the resetting the table. And I will admit that I was, as you write in your book, one of the people who said no before I said yes. And one of the people who thought you gave me a group of people who all thought the same way that I did. (laughs) So I can, uh, I yeah, can confirm that, that for sure. So given the divided nature of our society, why do you feel that religious institutions are the right places and religious leaders, the right people to help bridge the divide? One could argue that bringing politics to the pulpit is dangerous, yeah. yet you're suggesting amplifying political messages and discourse as a way to create connection.
0: So it's very dangerous to bring politics to the pulpit. In fact, it's, uh, if you want to keep our 501c3 and 4 status, um, we actually cannot um, advocate for uh, one side of the aisle over the other. And uh, now there'll be someone in here who's going to go report us because they think the rabbi goes over the line. Ira, please don't. And uh, <laughs> you're, you're right in my line side here, so... So I'm not, I'm not interested in amplifying politics. I'm interested in amplifying um, the values that undergird the politics. And that means we're going to talk about politics sometimes, but not because I actually want to push you to push uh, vote for a Democrat or a Republican. I want you to do what Judaism's history and, and tradition and faith teach us that we're supposed to do by way of how we act in the world, and then you decide how you're going to vote based on that. So that does mean that you're gonna talk about politics, but it's because we're talking about what makes the world a better place, not because I care about the politics. Um, Let me say one other thing, and those of you who've known me my whole time here know that I didn't touch anything overtly political for years because the most important thing to me still is you, meaning that my relationships with you, um, the the things you celebrate, the things you mourn, uh, the things that you worry about, that's what counts most for me, and I have found that when you realize that I care about that most, you're much more willing to hear what I have to say vis-a-vis politics.
1: How do you suggest we integrate the idea of radical centrism into our everyday lives? Especially, and I can say this has been the case even in my family, family and friends, where we have raw political differences and uh, the last few years have been really challenging in terms of finding ways to manage those relationships other than saying, we're just not gonna talk about it. So you're saying, let's talk about it. How do, how do you suggest we go about doing that?
0: Well, there's a question and I'll use Israel as an example. If someone wants to start with me around Israel, the first thing I say to them or ask them is, do you believe in a sovereign Jewish state in where it is, meaning geographically uh, situated where it is? And if they say no, then I walk away. I said there's no conversation here because that's a non-starter. So if someone is going to start with conspiracy theories and and things that are just not true, empirically not true, like calling an orange an apple or an apple an orange, to me then there's no conversation. But after that, if you're willing to let me speak and you're gonna hear me, and again, you're gonna repeat back to me what I said so I know you said, it's like couples therapy, right? And then uh, the opposite happens and then we are able to ask each other questions about that, then I think that a brave space is totally possible. And why in a synagogue, you asked before? Because I believe, with my pessimistic part, that synagogues and churches may be the last places to have those kinds of conversations. Because like I said, they're not happening at home safely anymore, so maybe they have to happen here.
1: Can you think of a particular situation where your beliefs changed after an open conversation with someone across the political divide?
0: There are um, a few people that I've had really important conversations with, um, and some of you are in this room. Um, so when I went to the airport with Lauren and the kids to uh, protest the, uh, the immigration ban, uh, the most, so many different ways you could describe it, but even that's political. I, as, as, as I write in the book, I, I open the book with it. I, I caught so much hell um, not just from members of the congregation, but you know, the the lovely world of social media where one person not from the congregation called me Osama bin Laden's stepson or something of that regard. And we, you know, almost scared me a little bit. Uh that week I also got a lot of very brave and angry phone calls from members of the congregation, some of whom were sitting in this room. And Charlie Oransky, who's not here only because his grandson is having his bar mitzvah tomorrow, so he gets a pass tonight. Uh said to me, he was the president, and said, do you really wanna be spending all this time on the phone? And I said, nothing's more important. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, every single one of these phone calls is about relationship. So the phone call would start, Rabbi Matt. And I say, yes, it's so-and-so. And I would say, hi, so-and-so, how is your wife and kids doing? Uh, uh, oh, they're doing okay, Lauren and the kids okay? And immediately it goes down one notch. What's going on? I was really upset about you going to the airport last week. Tell me. And they would go on. So we would have these really in-depth conversations. One of them, I don't think he's here tonight, said to me, I said to him, why are you so angry? And then he stopped and he got really quiet and said, I haven't really told anyone that this here, but my dad, way before terrorism was the thing that it is today, uh, was in the oil business and was shot dead by a terrorist in Taba. And I don't know how it is to navigate this immigration question because I haven't really reconciled this other part yet. And in that one moment, I thought to myself, there's a whole new understanding I have of immigration because there are people who are legitimately scared about people who are going to come into a country and terrorize families like he was terrorized. If it's logical or not, this came from a really deep uh, place of sadness for him. So I went right from that moment where I am fully on for compassion of immigrants as long as we are fully aware of the um, uh, understanding that security is equal to compassion. And so before, it was, and I could, go, I could go to guns, I could, there's a bunch of things I can do, but that was a great example of me being straight, don't oppress the stranger because we were strangers in a strange land, which I believe. But, so I said to him, I'll agree with you on border security if you agree that we should put immigrants in hotels and not in tents. And, um, and that's how the conversation ended. We both sort of laughed, it's sort of a, a pipe dream, but the idea is that people who come to the border should be treated like human beings, not like animals. And if they are animals, they shouldn't be allowed into the country.
1: Imagine for a moment that you have the power to bring together any two people in the world with opposing viewpoints and explore the process of helping them find common ground. Who might you choose?
0: Oh, I want me to name people right here. I mean, I, I, I mean, I mean, I, I have, I have. Where do you go? I mean, I, I have one buddy over there. Like you know, that we we started raising our kids together. Say, yeah, I'm talking about you. We started talking, you know, 17 years ago, and there's not one time we get together we don't have. So I don't have to. I mean, it, it happens all. I I am supplied with people all the time, and but the crazy thing is I seek it out, and so do they. And um, I don't think we ever. Again, I can name you 15 people off the... But never do we stop being friends. And, um, yeah. So, uh, you know, I I don't have to. It happens to me every day.
1: You write that compromising on some of the policy goals that have defined us up till now is an important aspect of engaging in the radical center. What if the other side isn't willing to compromise? And are there certain things like bodily autonomy or gun safety or gay marriage where compromise is just too difficult. Yep.
0: So uh, uh, there are, so I, I, this is what I believe. I don't know if it's true. I believe that 65% of our country is willing to talk about almost anything, and I, including the three issues you just brought up. That's what I believe. But somehow, and there's shame on us for the 65% who are exhausted for allowing the other percents that exist on each side on the fringes to have the loudest voices. So what they do is they keep on uh, pushing us away from each other, and it's our job in this room, if you believe you wanna be part of a radical centri- centrist movement, to say no, I am not allowing, if you're on the left, to allow the fringe to speak for you, or if you're on the right, to allow the right to speak for you. Every single time, I'll clean my house, you clean yours. And if we do that, the 65% of us can actually have conversations, and so here's mine. So here's the yeah, immigration before, 16 years old, Walking down Eastern Parkway with my father and my younger sister. My father's probably my age now. He looked really old to me at that point. <laughs> and uh, we get jumped from behind on Eastern Parkway. My sister's 12, I'm 16. My father, who has no uh, athletic ability at all, incredible academic ability, but no athletic ability, um, immediately, this probably a 19 year old kid, gets into a full on fist fight with the guy because. The reason he he so feels so adamant about it is the guy has like a 12-inch blade up to my sister's neck, and yeah, and I'm watching my older old man father, my age, fight with this 19-year-old, and this other partner of the guy with a knife, and the guy down there is so freaked out that my father is giving him such a fight, he yells "Cutter, Cutter," and I look back at my sister, and my sister says, "Please don't kill me." And I'm like, pop, he has a knife, he has a knife. He doesn't hear it though, because he's in this fight. And then I yell it again, he said, what, he has a knife? And at that moment, the mugger took my father's wallet and his whole pant pocket out. That's how strong the guy was and pulled. My father gets up, the other guy gets up, and about five seconds, he sits there with the knife, which feels like an hour to me, and I'm thinking, that's it. I'm about to watch my sister's neck get cut, my baby sister. And years and years later, when I was at a seminar, and they were asking us to do one of these stand in someone else's shoes or teach the position of the other side, uh, a young rabbi said to me, uh, you're not taking this seriously. I'm like, what are you talking about? I was the pro-gun position. He said, you're just looking up stuff on the Internet, and you're coming with a good argument, but you you, you don't really believe it. I said, of course I don't. And he said, can you think of a time that you would have believed it? And suddenly this story comes back to me. And I thought to myself that I had a gun, to this day I would have no uh, uh, issue at all with taking the gun and shooting that guy in a second to save my sister's life. Um, which is why this is what I believe when terrorists, you know, when we woke up last week and, and there was, you know, two bombs go off in Jerusalem and our son is living in Jerusalem, I very quickly felt the same thing. However, Um, That does not mean that I love guns. I'm not good at them. I don't shoot them well. I'm I'm awkward. I'd shoot myself or someone else that I love. Uh, But I do believe, um, and I was on the set of Morning Joe having this conversation with Scarborough, with Brzezinski, and suddenly all of us at the table said, we're no longer going to be anti-Second Amendment. We're going to be pro-gun safety. So I'm now actually pro-Second Amendment, as long as you believe in pro-gun safety also. And that position moved for me because I was able to put myself in a position where if I had a gun, I would have used it and still not felt badly about it to this day.
1: I want to read to you one of the questions from our uh, wonderful audience. Uh, actually, it kind of follows on something you we were talking about just a little bit ago. What do you say to the 30% of our country that is uh, Make America Great Again? How do you engage the far right and, for that matter, the far left, both of which have demonstrated profound intolerance?
0: Um, Whoever wrote that, I say this with love, I think the question is already fraught in a way that doesn't help us have a conversation that's brave and safe. And because I don't believe um, that everyone who voted for Donald Trump is an intolerant person. Uh, Jake had a project when he was a junior, sophomore, I don't know, right around the election that was coming, I guess it was towards 2020. And they had to take a, a survey that doesn't tell you who the political uh, leader is, just the position. And Jake comes to me and sort of like has this, sort of, you know, fact, I said, what's wrong? And he said, I, I agree with about 33% of Donald Trump's positions. And I said, that's probably about right. And, you know, I will say out loud, and I'm sorry to Trump supporters in here, he's a despicable human being in the way that he acts. Now, he, he, I mean, when, when Talia was eight, And I'm watching TV and the Hollywood access tape comes on and there's the grab the you-know-what and they you know Remember TV just played it. They played it right out. Talia's walking out of the room and She hears this she goes zoop turns her right around. and She said dad. What did he say? And now at eight years old something that I really did not want to talk to her about I had no choice, but to talk to her about because of a despicable human beings actions And I still happen to be one of those people that thinks that presidents should carry him or, or God willing, one day herself with decorum and with a certain way of being. It doesn't mean, however, that every position that he supported, including, by the way, uh, making peace with four Arab nations, um, which all of us should support, and putting the Jerusalem, uh, the, the American embassy in Jerusalem, we've all wanted that for years. Why can't we say you're a despicable human being He probably would have been president had he not shot himself in the foot with his despicable behavior. And that we can support certain positions. So to the person who said that, I think we need to separate the tolerant from the intolerant. So there's probably a certain percentage of this country that's intolerant. And like I said to you before, if you're gonna come to me with conspiracy theories, if you're gonna come to me with there being, um, uh, what are they saying they were shooting into us with the shots, Uh, uh, microchips to follow me around, if you're going to tell me, uh, and I'm sorry, that the election was stolen, but suddenly this year, two years later, there's very little election corruption, then we're not going to have a conversation because you're being conspiracy theorists. But if you're anyone else besides that, and you supported Donald Trump, then I want to have a conversation with you because I don't think you're necessarily intolerant. I just think you think differently than I do. And folks push me on it. I mean, but that's how I see it.
1: That, that's really interesting. I, I,
0: you always think, like, I, I never say how I feel. That's the problem with me. No.
1: <laughs> no but
0: er, er, Eric Selinger once said, you know, we love and hate Goertz for the same reason. He, he always shows you who he is. So uh, you're never well, going to get fake from me.
1: We're glad you do. Thank you. I loved your discussion in the book of differentiating big T and little t truth in philosophical and religious debate in the context of an interfaith trip to Israel. I didn't know what that was. I'm gonna ask you to explain it. Yeah. But can you tell us that story and explain how it relates to the idea of engaging in radical centrism?
0: Uh, anyone, uh, Linda, anyone else come on that trip? On that interfaith trip? So we uh, two, three, we have a few of you, good. So I don't know if, you, no, not no, in the interfaith trip. Uh, so but you should, next one, Sue, so you'll come on that one too. So Ruth and Linda and Matt, I don't know if you remember, we, we, we get up north first and we're at the Sea of Galilee. Now, it's funny. Like, Jake just did a a 40-mile ride around the Sea of Galilee. You know, we go there, and we see all these things in Jewish and modern uh, uh, Zionist terms, but we're with Christians, and suddenly, and I could get teary now, they believed in that same place that Jesus walked on water. Now, that is, to me, not my truth, but I will never, ever deny it, to my Christian brothers and sisters, because what does it hurt me for them to have that truth and for me to have my own? We're not, as long as we don't kill each other over it. So we chose, out of the three of us, me to lead this prayer moment and saying, Jesus, for many of us, walked right there. And it felt really strange coming out of my mouth, but it felt also unbelievably endearing and balanced and connected, because they were all crying as I was saying it, Partly because a rabbi was saying it, and partly because it's their truth, and partly because they knew it wasn't mine. And that made us open to each other's truths as we went to other places. That's not fake news, is what I'm trying to say. Jesus walking on water is not fake news. It's just a different truth than ours is, and a beautiful one.
1: Well, I again, what really resonated for me, and that story moved me very much, was the differentiating between empirical truth yes. and the fact that less empirical truths can exist and people can have different feelings about them and that and, and that you can engage on those issues and people aren't wrong for believing differently. It, it, I thought it was it kind of blew my mind when I read it.
0: Right, well n- newsflash I can't prove the Bible to anyone. And uh, those of us who try, we just came back from an Israel trip and uh, the most offensive thing that anyone said to us was a member, I'm not going to say which political party because people will get angry, who said, oh, I walk on the rocks of Abraham every day. And every single one of us is like, are you insane? Like, the only thing we know we can prove is the end of David's dynasty. Maybe one day we'll prove that Abraham actually walked there but we're not gonna kill each other over it. And for you to make believe that that's the reason for your political position is full of many, many problems.
1: I have two questions here uh, talking about college campuses, so um, I'll, I'll start with the first one and I'm sure it'll segue into the second. Again, from the audience, how do we create a brave space on campuses and in schools where students should be able to express unpopular or contrary viewpoints? Yet are scared for their lives or graded performance to speak up.
0: Yeah, but by, by the way, I, I wish I had a good answer for this one. You know, uh, um, where's Dina Poulet? Are you here? I saw you. So years ago, and I think I apologized to you for this already, Dina. But if not, I'll do it again publicly. Came to me and said, "I think we're in big trouble. There are professors out there who are uh, who are." trying to inculcate their opinions upon our kids and not allowing them to, to say what they need to in return because of fear of, of grades, of whatever, a power. And I, the reason I was so offended that night is that my dad was a college professor. And my dad did everything he could in his life to provoke his students, uh, not because he necessarily agreed to disagree with them, because he wanted them to grow. And Jen, when you and I were in college, I didn't go to Harvard, I know you did.
1: I didn't go to Harvard. I I know, but you you
0: did go to law school. She's really bright. Um, I just like to give her a hard time. Um, Our professors uh, provoked us on purpose, and it was some of the greatest learning that we ever did. And I don't believe that professors should be nasty or mean or, you know, I've had those in my life also, but we're now in the place where a professor uh, really can't say certain things to provoke his or her students because Again, as as Rabbi Sternberg said, someone's going to call safe space and he or she is going to lose their tenure. So I'm not exactly sure how to answer the question because we... Now, I could answer the question better student to student, but with the power position of professors, it's not nearly as easy as it should be or used to be.
1: Well, and this is another... Kind of take on a, a similar problem. How do you suggest a parent deal with a child who is in college and heavily influenced by a political group and unwilling to even attempt to have a rational conversation with their parent?
0: That, that, listen, I, I think part of that is, um, and I, again, I don't have kids in college yet, but I think part of this, part almost. Of, almost, I think part of that is what kids do to their parents when they're in college. So, I mean, I, mean, I just think we should. Uh, Bob Cowan used to, and I always get it wrong, I think it was Mark Twain's quote about something along the lines of, I got back from college and realized how smart my parents were. Something along those lines, right? So, I think eventually what happens is you go through all these stages, and that it's like anything else. Like, if you keep on telling your kid not to take the cookie from the cookie jar, we know what Adam and Eve did, right? We know it doesn't work. So I would almost give the kid a lot of space to express all that without uh, being instinctively repelling of them. Um, And then, you know, at a certain point, the fifth conversation, the tenth conversation, saying, is it possible for me to tell you how I feel and why it is that I feel that way and what it is that's troublesome about your position? Now, I've tried this with my college-age nieces. And they just will end up backing off from it because they're not ready to have the conversation. So I think maturity is a part of it, and we shouldn't be so scared that our kid's actually gonna go join the PLO. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that's necessarily what the saying. It's, we see 10 steps ahead, they're just exploring the world.
1: And another question from the audience. Uh, how concerned are you about the future of Judaism with so many young people not involved and intermarriages? Uh, so common.
0: That wasn't that wasn't in the book, but you know you you Again, think, you, I'm, take I'm sh- you, think you take this you think you take the shot anyway. Um, I, I don't believe that intermarriage is necessarily the problem. Um, I would like my kids uh, to marry uh, Jewish people. I'm not going to sit shiva if they don't. Um, but I think that the real question is what those marriages do by way of how they raise their children and uh, there are still people in this congregation who are not Jewish who feel really judged uh, by lots of people around here. And I think it's a very dangerous thing for us to do to people. And uh, in fact, I would say we all owe a debt of gratitude to people who are not Jewish who raise Jewish kids. Um, So any of you who are doing that here, thank you, because you are helping to perpetuate our people in the most important of ways. So I think it's about how we raise our children, not necessarily who we marry, but I do think it's easier with endogamous uh, marriages. I also believe that uh, affiliated religion is in trouble. Thank God we are not here, but it is, but not Judaism. 94% of our country, when asked, say that they are incredibly proud to identify as Jewish people. Only 29% of those people belong to synagogues. Perhaps the synagogues have a problem uh, what kind of menus they're offering their Jews from which to eat. That's up to us, um, not only up to the Jews.
1: I have another question from your, uh, your from the audience, from, the, audience. From beautiful, wonderful audience. From the beautiful, wonderful audience.
0: By the way, you, you hear, we, we go in and out here, but you do hear us?
1: Yeah. Oh, okay. are, oh, I didn't realize we were going in and out. What, what has been the most pivotal moment in your rabbinical career on your journey to build a brave space?
0: It's a great question. The most pivotal moment. Uh, I would say uh, there's like five or six, but the, the first one, even though this would sound like it's not, it was 9-11. And uh, just because that, that ch- changed my life in ways, and I'm sure anyone who's in my age group specifically, um, you know, for some it was December 7th, right, Pearl Harbor, and uh, uh, John Kennedy being killed. But for me, 9-11 changed the world because I grew up in an area of the world where it was cool not to be patriotic. And uh, we didn't like the police, and we didn't like uh, firefighters, and we didn't like politicians. We didn't trust anyone right off of Watergate. All the things that you and I are not so—I mean, your husband and I are the same age. So You and Lauren are younger.
1: Only a little bit.
0: But— But, you know, Larry, we grew up at a time where we didn't trust all the things for good reason. I mean, Watergate was horrible and uh, Vietnam was horrible. 9-11 made us come together in a way that made us see each other differently. So that was pivotal. And uh, the other pivotal thing was was, uh, Donald Trump being elected because I felt forced from that experience of that election to be able to know that if we didn't learn to talk to each other about this, that we were going to be in big trouble and that... You know, what was really hard was that, you know, there were many Trump supporters in our congregation who felt like they weren't allowed to talk about it. And uh, what we really needed was to hear from them, was not to be um, quiet. The only, you know, this was very cowardly, and I'm guessing that whoever wrote this letter is not in the room, but if you are, it was cowardly. It was, I got an anonymous letter uh, from the Short Hills Livingston Trump supporters who told me that, I'm, you know, just said horrible things about me and, and about what I teach children um, in terms of politics, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, you should just know there's a lot of us out here. Well, if you're out here, then, then let's talk. But if you're gonna send me a letter that's anonymous, that's not really conversation, it's just threats.
1: Is there anything? It, was, it wasn't oh. you,
0: right? I don't know.
1: I'll never admit it now. <laughs> Is there anything about our role as American Jews that you think sets us apart from what's happening in this country at large?
0: I don't think it sets us apart. I think that's like the whole chosen people thing, but I do think we have a history and a tradition of dialectic and of discourse. The Talmud starts with a question. The Seder starts with four questions. We all know the dumb joke by now that 10 Jews have 30 opinions in a room. We go, ha, 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 because it's so true. So I think that we have an inclination towards dialogue and towards uh, pushing each other in ways that help us grow. And so I think we have that on our side, but if we don't use it, it doesn't matter. So if we use our tradition well, it serves us well. And if it doesn't, we just become part of the pack that is um, hurting the country and fraying its fabric right now.
1: This might be straying a little bit from the book, but uh, it feels like it, it has to be... Discussed. You talked about your mother marching in the South during the Civil Rights Movement, and, um, and there are some really wonderful stories. Um, what are your thoughts on the continuing increase in anti-Semitism, including the recent incidents with Kyrie Irving and particularly with Kanye West?
0: Some of you were um, watched the PBS panel um, last night, which I haven't gotten to see yet, and it's always strange. I said to someone, being on like, a, you know, I'm meeting with Mark Rothstein at at 3:30. He's like, don't you think you should get on the Zoom soon? And you're going from like your weekly meeting with your executive director to being on a panel about anti-Semitism, which is the strange way of Zoom. But one of the history professors really helped me understand something. That yes, we should all be scared of the uptick in anti-Semitism. What's scarier is the normalization of such, and that's what I really learned from that panel yesterday. Was that obviously we have to fight the uptick, but what can never be allowed? Talk about never again is normalization, and uh, we and I've I've listed and iterated for all of you the things that we have to do. From you know from not being victims to hating all hate to uh, to being proud and loud of who we are to make allies. I mean, there's there's a lot of things we can do. Uh, but we have to, we can't just talk about it at a sermon in Rosh Hashanah and say, that was a great sermon, I hope. Uh, but what we do have to do is get up and actually act upon it every day because it's, a, it's It's actually really serious. But when we become hysterical and call it 1933, when there was no ADL and there was no APAC and there was no even, you, know, you could hate J Street, but the, all, all of these uh, advocacy arms didn't exist. We have levers of power that we need to leverage. And if we don't, um, I'm not going to say it's our own fault, but we're going to contribute to it. So we better take part in making sure that we change what's what. And again, folks, I will say, if you're a Democrat, call it in your own party. And if you're a Republican, call it in your own party, because we both have anti-Semites in our respective parties. Clean your house, your own house, before you start pointing fingers at the others.
1: Okay, this is uh, the last question. Uh, We're coming to an end, but I just... You're
0: getting hungry? Uh,
1: no, I could sit here all night. The truth is, there's, like a, there's a good like first 120 pages that I could talk to you about for like three hours. I just know some of these folks probably have dinner to get to, so, I'm so good. I'll find you later. <laughs> it seems like we have a lot stacked against us. I know your son certainly thinks you are an eternal optimist who only gives sermons about hope. You were inspired by the rabbis in your life. You tell these stories in your book, amazing stories how do you hope you have and will continue to inspire the younger generation at TBJ?
0: Say that last part again. Sorry.
1: Uh, How do you hope you have and will continue to inspire the younger generation at TBJ?
0: Since I I get uh, accounted for how many times I mention each child, I have to make sure I mention Sadie tonight because I mentioned Jake and I mentioned Talia. And um, so I would say that um, Sadie Gortz, I have to make sure I don't cry, helps give me um, some of the greatest hope that I have. Uh, because um, she is a child, as all my children are, children of B'nai Jeshurun and this congregation. And when I see uh, her enthusiasm and love for being Jewish and her drive to have faith and her depth of questions, um, and I hope that Lauren and I had something to do with it, I believe that Karen and Leah um, and um, Lucy and Howard, um, who's here and everyone who served here um, gets up and are models of not only belief in a better tomorrow, but a belief in pushing people to be the very best they can be. So people don't always like it when we do it. Um, and you know we look for respect, not for love. We, we like love, you know we, don't, we go into this profession because we sort of are pleasers, a lot of us. Uh, but what we care most about is that we help people be their highest sense of self. And when I see it in my own kids, Um, And I see it in the kids of this congregation. There's no, by the way, you know, people say to me, come on, you know, over a drink, come on, you must get tired every Shabbat morning when you get up, bar mitzvah every single Saturday. So I said, you want me to be honest? I'll be honest. Getting up stinks. Getting on the bima with those kids, there's never, ever, ever, not been one in 25 and a half years that's been anything but uh, sustaining, perpetuating, filling and uh, uh, replete with the fact that we are definitely heading for a better tomorrow because I see those kids and what they have to say, including your kids, every single Shabbat. And uh, so no, I don't get tired of it ever because it makes me feel like we have um, hope in a better tomorrow. But I I wanna say one thing since I I know this is it. Uh, My one thing to all of you is that this doesn't change just because we we hope it's gonna be better. Hope is not about um, uh, magic, it's about work. And I really believe that we are at an inflection point. And if we wanna continue to be angry because we cannot stand what the other side is saying, we can, we can can do that. But you could also at the same time kiss our democracy goodbye. And I really, I'm, I'm being that dramatic on purpose. But if you really love the privileges that we have in this country, and a really imperfect country, but, but you try to choose someplace else you want to live. Just come on up and tell me where that is because we're all talking about getting our passports right for other places. I haven't found one yet, including Israel, which of course is my other love in life. Uh, but, you know, go check out their election they just had. And um, so if you love this country and want it to continue to be your home, then put aside some of our own ego that we have in these conversations and try being a little bit more open to hearing what people have to say, even if it bothers you, because the Talmud says truth that bothers you probably is part of your own truth, which is why it's bothering you so much. So what someone else is saying, when it really rubs you wrong, it's because part of you knows that part of what they're saying is actually true. And that's what makes it so hard. Um, So we went to Israel, again, I'm so happy to see so many of our uh, fellow travelers. We had such a wonderful trip. Uh, October, well, I'm not going to go into this because we have a lot of and okay, so I don't want to rank any of the others, right, Robin? right? We had, don't we have, Robin's running a trip uh, coming this, this summer. But, um, but one of the things that was so extraordinary about this group was um, I actually never heard anyone tell me what political party they affiliated with. I happen to know from knowing people well around where they are. Uh, but the conversations that we had and the depth with which we spoke And the things that we learned from each other were extraordinary. And not once, right? Not once. Did we ever, ever talk about who was a Democrat and who was a Republican, who was an Independent? We just talked about everything we cared about. And I think we all grew from that. And I'm guessing some of us learned things from people on the other side. But you'll never know because they never said. Uh, But it was certainly a a really – that's what made the trip so extraordinary was that we were able to do that. And, folks, um, you know – I, 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 I'm not retiring tomorrow, but I am 57 years old. The, the Jewish news today called me 58. I was not happy. And uh, because uh, as you get closer to 60 and 70 and 80, you want, I, obviously you want to slow it down. But it's not a, uh, it wouldn't be um a, a, a understatement to say that I'm entering whatever the last chapter of my career is. And I hope it's for a long time. And I don't mean tomorrow in five years or anything like that. My commitment, and I want you to join me, is to make this place a brave space uh, where you are willing to say, at B'nai Jeshrin, we're gonna have conversations of the very vulnerable, of the very open, of the very truthful, and um, that you're willing to grow because each community, each one at a time, changes the world, and I want us to change it right here so that we could be a model and a light unto the nations in the synagogue. Matt, stick around. <laughs> you stick around, I'll stick around.
1: Thank- I just wanna say thank you for being you, writing this beautiful, beautiful book that shares so much of who you are, but also uh, giving us this path forward to to uh, build this brave space together with you. And thank you for inviting me thank to come you. have this and, conversation. And, and folks, Karen, I, I think, wants to- And and,
0: and, and so Karen's uh, gonna speak, but but folks, thank, thank you for allowing me to have extracurricular projects because um, they're not easy, but they're important. Thank you so, 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 so much to Jen Beagleson for a really incredible conversation. I adore you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this edition of Call Jesrin. If you would like to learn more, visit our website at tbj.org and follow us on social media for updates on all our upcoming opportunities for engagement. We really hope to see you soon.